You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Next month, on October 11th, Japan relaxes more restrictions for inbound and outbound travelers, but some businesses aren't banking on a major influx of visitors just yet. Industry watchers say Japan's yen has dropped to its lowest in nearly three decades, and that's a problem. We talked to Peter Shanlin, Chief Operating Officer of the Halikolani Resort, about the rebound outlook. It's been a year since the hotel reopened after extensive renovations. Its sister hotel, Halipuna Waikiki, welcomed guests last July, but Shanlin says we're still in a transition phase and 2023 is still more the target. The hospitality industry around the world is one understandably marked historically by what I'd call a certain type of anxious optimism or feeling that the industry is entitled to be doing better and the world doesn't work that way. So I think it's important for businesses in these situations to be extremely realistic and and that's because they have to take care of their staff and facilities first, particularly the staff. And, and to do that, we need to be very sober and rational and level-headed in terms of how we assess data and market conditions and what's coming forward. So all that said and done, of course, Halapuna for us by Halakalani opened last July, a little over a year ago, and Halakalani was October 1st, 2021. And it's a gradual, steady ramp-up, but quite gradual for us. And we are two hotels that have always enjoyed a tremendous amount of business from Japan, as you know. So with that, it's a longer recovery for us than some of our friendly neighbors around us. And how have you been able to handle the staff? If you're not up to 100%, you probably can't hire everybody back. Well, first of all, I have to say that our staff have shown their courage and their true colors and character during our closures, which were almost two years for some of them and even more for others. They remained loyal. We had more than 90% of our people returned. And one of the things we were able to do from the outset was from the moment that hundreds of staff members were furloughed in 2020 and thereon, we were able to maintain their full health and medical benefits for the two years or so that they were out. We felt that it was the right thing to do. They've been loyal to us and the guests, and we wanted to be loyal to them. And in fact, I believe that it's actually strengthened our relationship, if I can say that, over time. Have you hired everybody back, though, at full hours? Not entirely. Our volume is somewhat significantly off from 2019. Now, we have to remember 2019 in Hawaii for tourism, as you know, was an extremely strong year. 2017 is probably a more level benchmark. So we're very close to 2017 levels but we're gonna to have to see more volume to be able to fulfill that return completely. You know, we did just talk to Senator Glenn Mackay, who just returned the other day from Japan, and he was hearing from our industry partners that Japanese visitors that were coming to the islands were opting for more time at a more moderately priced property, and then maybe just spending a couple of nights at the luxury properties. And what are you seeing on your end? I think that's true to a great extent, and I think that's a direct function of the current strength of the U.S. dollar against the yen, which we know is probably the weakest yen that we've seen against the dollar in somewhere around three decades. This is really significant, and I think it's somewhat underreported in the Western news in general, because we are almost 50 percent more expensive than we were three years ago for the Japanese. So what we start to see in the initial return of the Japanese ourselves accordingly so far is that a majority of the Japanese that we see coming in are more affluent because they can afford the high air, they can still combat the strong dollar and spend. And that's why many Japanese travelers coming in tell me informally that the front of the plane was full, but that economy was sparse. So it all makes sense, and I think it's a function of currency exchange and the strong dollar. HTA just went out for bid on the marketing contract for the Japan travelers. What are you hoping, December, in January? I think that, well, we're seeing the beginning of a return now. Is so We forecast for our own company from last year, and we told our employees, too, that 2022 would likely play out, and I believe it has so far through three quarters, as a transitional year. And the 2023 would hopefully be more of a significant recovery year in terms of actual realized business volume. One question, Catherine, that relates to all this, and we don't know the answer, of course, is how much pent-up demand is there in Japan to overcome, hopefully to some great degree, that financial oppression caused by the strong dollar against the yen? And we're hopeful, cautiously optimistic ourselves, this may play a good role. So the answer is yes. We believe that in 23, gradually, and probably Q1 won't fare that differently from Q4 of 2022, 
that we're stepping into next week because it's only 100 days away. October is when Japan really drops a lot of the restrictions, the travel restrictions, and so lots of businesses here in Hawaii are keeping their fingers crossed. You know, we know the Honolulu Marathon, you know, it celebrates its 50th anniversary. They're hoping that more people are going to be willing to travel. I do believe that they should be better, and I agree with you completely. I think that's the correct assessment. I do think that in terms of remaining headwinds at the same time, given all that, One is flight availability, and the other is flight expense. So while oil prices right now are really dropping, and with what's recently happened, despite the war in Europe, but what's recently happened with European governments now reacting to the Fed here, are obviously going to start buying bonds and beef up their own economy, as Japan did the other day themselves. That was a really big move, trying to fight the strong dollar, that oil will drop. So good news is airfare should come down somewhat over the next three to six months. And uh, in the meanwhile, though, with headwinds, Japan does have significant surcharges per ticket for outbound Japanese travelers. It could be as much as hundreds of dollars a seat, is my understanding. And that, on the other hand, Europe right now is quite expensive to the Japanese if you look at the yen versus the euro and the pound sterling. So it means that a lot of business could be deflected back to more desirable areas such as Hawaii. So it's a really bit of a mixed bag. And I think, again, the big question in there is, as I said before, how much pent-up demand from Japan will come in. I actually, my gut is that there's going to be a lot. I think that happened with the United States, and it was that revenge travel. And the question is, will revenge travel reveal itself in Japan? And I think to some extent it will, and that's going to help Hawaii a lot in 2023. Right, so we'll just have to see how the airlift also expands, you know, the capacity there. Yes, what we understand is that those airlines will be gradually and continually adding seats. And I think what you mentioned, that October 11th change, where they eliminate the restrictions on entries of foreign nationals to Japan, and it's easier for them to come out and come back without negative COVID test results, as long as they have a vaccine certificate for the Japanese themselves, will really support travel. So I see that October 11th door opening about two weeks from now as the beginning of a significant shift that will start to reveal results during Q4, but I think, again, much more so in Q1 and Q2 of next year. I think that uh, another thing, though, is that Uhiro, uh, as you know, this week had their report come out, and they expressed very firm concerns about global recession during 2023. So that is an overarching simultaneous phenomenon from a business and economic standpoint that we can't predict at all yet for sure, but I do have some veiled concerns about how that might affect collective international travel into Hawaii. I think when we last talked, you said you were getting a fair interest from travelers from Australia and other international destinations. You know, we did see that the the pound took a hit. Just remains to be seen what will keep people away or entice them to, to come back to the islands. But I don't know, are you hearing that maybe the Japanese traveler is looking closer to home, either Guam or just traveling domestically within Japan? I'm not sure how Guam would play into that specifically, but I would say that in domestic Japan, you raise an important point, which is that, you know, recently the Japanese government reintroduced domestic travel incentives for Japanese citizens where the government there, in simple terms, they subsidize a portion of a domestic Japanese vacation within a certain range of dates. So it clearly, clearly incentivizes Japanese to experience vacation and spend their dollars and create tax revenue within domestic Japan, which is a highly intelligent strategic move on the part of the Japanese government. It doesn't help Hawaii, but I don't think it's going to have a dramatic negative impact for our overall inbound volume from Japan. And then your property was able to take advantage of renovation plans that you had in the queue. What's the snapshot right now? Timing is everything. We were planning renovation for a little over a year later than we actually enacted it in the end, given COVID. We realized that when we assessed for ourselves that COVID would likely be a protracted phenomenon for Hawaii, and we ended up being, I think, fairly correct there, unfortunately. Um, we realized that we should step up that renovation because the risk was for us that if we waited and still did it in 22 and 23, the original plan, it would have meant that likely COVID eventually ends and that we bring back all the employees and then we shut down and we have to furlough them a second time. And we thought that would not only be completely unfair to them, but in terms of the long-term sustainability of our assets in Waikiki, 
Halakalani and Halakuna by Halakalani, that that would be a, a dangerous strategic move. So we did the two renovations. Both hotels are sparkling and shimmering new, and our food and beverage outlets at Halakalani are extremely busy, principally with residential business. And so there is a revenge entertainment and travel, too, on a local level. You know, hotels throughout Hawaii have experienced great Kamaina business, and we really appreciate the loyalty and support of those living here in Hawaii, you know, over the last two, two and a half years. Well, I think the fans of your bakery are eagerly awaiting the reopening, so hopefully you'll make an announcement soon. We will make an announcement soon that it's our plan, and and it'll be coming rather sooner than later, and we're very excited about that. That is the next major step for us in our food and beverage evolution following the recent reopening of House Without a Key, where we added also our new bar at House Without a Key named Earl's, and it's been extremely busy with great vistas of the ocean and our famous Mai Tai and Ernest Hemingway's Daiquiri, which he enjoyed during his honeymoon at House Without a Key in Halakalani in 1940. So we're celebrating the golden age of travel there. And metaphorically speaking, Catherine, I hope that the golden age of travel be returning quite soon to Hawaii and into 2023. That was Peter Shanlin, Chief Operating Officer of the Halikolani Corporation, talking to us about the extended rebound for businesses who rely on Japanese visitors. reality check today has to do with sunscreen. A new law goes into effect on Maui October 1st. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marina Riker joins us today. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I know there's been lots of talk about all the bad things that are in sunscreens that hurt our reefs. So Maui is going to be, what, the first to roll this out, right? Yes, yeah. So we're going to be the first county to roll this out. Um, Hawaii County actually has a similar policy that's set to take effect December 1st. Um, But at least here in Maui County, folks should start checking their sunscreen bottles just to make sure that they're complying with our new law. And I know recently they did put up some uh, sunscreen dispensers, I think, at some of the popular tourist spots, (laughs) which kind of struck me as a little odd at first. But I guess with, you know, all the hand sanitizers everywhere that we've dealt with in the last couple of years, it shouldn't be um, so weird. Yeah, so it's my understanding that the county is actually in the process of doing that. I, I don't think all of them are quite set up yet. But I think the the county's goal in all of this is they want to educate first. Um, and that's kind of their, their approach to enforcement. Um, technically, businesses can be subject to an, an $1,000 fine if they're violating this policy. But the county has said that they really want to work with folks to educate them on this new law. So part of that is um, I think that folks in Hawaii, because we've had we have the statewide um, sunscreen policy that's not quite as sweeping as the Maui County policy, but folks are maybe already checking the back and checking the ingredients that are in their sunscreen. But sometimes our visitors might not be aware of that. So that's why where I think the county is taking a really proactive role to making sure that uh, visitors know about this and um, folks in the visitor industry are helping to educate them on that. Yeah, because there are a couple of uh, chemicals in uh, some sunscreens that just are not good for the coral reefs. And so I guess Maui County wants people to know, hey, you know, uh, only uh, mineral sunscreens, right? The zinc oxide, titanium dioxide. Yes, that's correct. And Maui County also, they have a really extensive FAQ on their website about all of this. So they also explained, because there has been some recent research done that has come out and said, hey, we actually need um, we need more research on all sunscreens, uh, mineral and non-mineral. Um, and the county does kind of clarify that right now, like you see a lot of like reef friendly or reef safe brandings on sunscreen, but that's there's not really a definition for that and that's not regulated. So you should really be careful to check the back of your sunscreen bottles. And the County of Maui also urges folks to, if you can, um, try to avoid uh, sun exposure during the heat of the day between 10 and 2. And if you can, 
wear long sleeve shirts and hats and sunglasses and other things that can protect you from the sun um, because they say it's important to limit like any kind of sunscreen getting in our waters. So that's one thing they're also urging folks to do on their website. Yeah, and the mineral stuff, that's the stuff that generally uh, turns your face white. <laughs> yes, well, and they also have on their website a guide um, that, that talks about, okay, if what are some other options if you're looking for mineral-based sunscreen and you're worried about a white residue? Um, and they say that it comes in powders and lotions and other types of forms, and there are tinted versions and all that sort of stuff. So you can definitely um, find sunscreen that uh, maybe isn't that kind of chalky white uh, ingredient that we always think of. Yeah. So um, the county actually has all of that on their website right now. It's a really helpful resource. And then what about enforcement? Um, so enforcement, they say right now they are taking an education approach to enforcement. Um, so residents can report if they see a, a business uh, violating the law, they can call the county. Um, but the county says it's really, it's been working with businesses, it's been trying to educate them really extensively by meeting with surf, surf shops and smaller retailers and big box retailers over the last year to ensure that everyone knows that this new law is coming. Um, and the county says that they really want to take a an education focus rather than a, a focus on enforcement and fines to start out with. Um, it, so that's, that's kind of their approach that they're taking right now. What is the fine? Do you know? The fine is up to a thousand dollars. Yeah, so I mean it's a significant fine um, if they if they are penalized with that. But the county is saying at this point they really want to work on just educating folks about this new law. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marina. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Marina Riker with today's reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials. Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature. On view now. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Joseph Selby, author of Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about neuroscience and the meditation-born spiritual experience. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. REITs, real estate investment trusts. You may look at REITs differently if you're an investor looking to make money or if you're a lawmaker looking to increase the tax coffers of the state. REITs don't pay corporate taxes and that means money made off those real estate investments in the islands doesn't necessarily stay here. Steve Wexler, the president and CEO of NAREIT, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, is in town this week to dole out grants to a half a dozen community groups. It's upped its profile in the islands following attempts by lawmakers over the years to extract more money out of REITs. NAREIT's investments include just about most shopping malls on every island as well as hotels and more. We sat down with Wexler in our studio yesterday afternoon after it presented the Institute for Human Services a check to help improve the water system at the Model Homeless Project, Kauiki Village, located just off Nimitz Highway. Over the last several years, NAREIT, uh, through our NAREIT Hawaii office and our NAREIT Foundation, has been supporting a, a number of charitable undertakings in Hawaii. And in general, those undertakings have been connected to some form or fashion of uh, housing, affordable housing. Well, most of the groups are tied to affordable housing. This morning, we were at the Kahaiki Village, uh, which we had funded before, in fact, to help them expand and get set. 
And uh, today we, we presented a check to enable the village to improve their water supply and sanitation so the pumping system would work as, as it should. We've provided funding to acquire land in some situations. We've provided support for homes to be built on some of the neighbor islands. And, you know, we've done this over the last several years because we've been very focused on helping the need for affordable housing in Hawaii. I know my experience has been, you know, really limited to legislative hearings, you know, because there, the whole issue of, of uh, you know, bills to re-look at the relationship with the REITs, you know, because I, I was surprised. I didn't realize how many properties that you're involved with across the state. I mean, you know, from Alamoana Shopping Center to International Marketplace, you know, all the islands. Yes, REITs own and operate properties on all the islands. Uh, in many different sectors. So there are REITs that are in the hospitality business and on, on many of the signature hotels in Hawaii, but there are also REITs that own uh, affordable housing. There are REITs that own uh, in industrial-related property, warehouse logistical distribution. There are REITs that own healthcare-related properties. You know, REITs, not just in Hawaii, but in the United States generally, own and operate real estate of all types across the spectrum. So if, if permanent structure can be put on the land and used to generate rent and income, then uh, REITs may well own it. So REITs today own you know, properties that operate shopping centers, uh, apartment houses, the warehouses, and, and uh, it's also true that REITs own a variety of properties that enable us to communicate with each other. So you may use your cell phone. Uh, it's helped along by a communications tower, which may be owned by a REIT. Some of those towers are in Hawaii. Same is true with the cloud. The cloud is in a building, and REITs in the United States own data centers where the cloud resides and uh, enable us to not only store our data and information, but further our communication. Well, you know, I know that there have been uh, concerns by lawmakers, you know, about the tax breaks that the the REITs get, you know, and, and you know, we've seen in so many sectors uh, across our community where there's this growing feeling of, you know, we want folks to be mindful of, of where we are and to maybe take less but give more, you know, whether it's tourism, you know, there's, there's, everything's been turned on its head with the pandemic. Um, so, I don't know, how do you talk to critics about saying, you know, you're, you're getting too much of a tax break? Well, the, the simple reality is, you know, REITs are not able to retain their earnings. Part of the bargain that was made with Congress and the various states is that REITs, as uh, owners of real estate, uh, which will collect rent, are required to basically pay that out immediately same year to the owners of the REIT, the shareholders. So there's not a retention of earnings in the entity. So the earnings are taxed to the individual, you or me as shareholders, as owners, and then we are taxed actually at the higher tax rates, not the normal dividend rate in the United States. And so at the end of the day, it's a tax treatment that's much more comparable to how most real estate is actually owned in this country and in, in the state of Hawaii, which is through partnerships or limited liability corporations where there is not a entity level tax. The REITs are treated that same way as a pass-through entity. When you see legislation come up year after year to try and get more out of REITs, I don't know, what's been, I guess, the bottom line? I think the bottom line is when uh, the state of Hawaii has looked at potential revenue, it's, it's minimal uh, because the reality is that uh, REITs are being taxed in an appropriate and fair way that if that were to end, there are other ways this real estate would be owned, and it would not net in, in substantially more taxes. So, you know, I think the, the issue is built on sand, so to speak. Recently, there was a, a kind of a tragic situation at, at the Alamoana Shopping Center. The center has been involved in major renovation, and yet we had a situation where there was a rusty railing, and two young men, you know, fell several floors down, and it was just sheer failure to maintain the facility. So where does the, the, the REIT stand on responsibilities, you know, for things like that? I can't speak to that specific situation. I don't know the facts. But uh, at the end of the day, 
you know, my compassion goes out to, to, to the injured in the situation. Obviously, property needs to be well-maintained. There's nothing about operating as a REIT or not a REIT that suggests, uh, you know, one way or the other way is a better way to own uh, and operate property. It's Operating as a REIT does not affect the uh, nature of the landlord and the responsibility that goes with it. And it, it, it it's important to make sure that these are safe and healthy working environments. I don't know what more the ownership of a property like that, how you hold them accountable. You know, I can't like really that. speak to the specific incident. Yeah. I'm not familiar with and so what can you tell us about, you know, the, the concern that we might have, let's say, with the recession? How does that affect a, a REIT and how it operates? So, uh, you know, in the United States today, uh, REITs represent about 20 percent of the investment real estate marketplace in, in some of the sectors, a little less in others. There are 41 countries in the world today that have adopted the REIT format of investment. So two-thirds of the OECD nations have REITs. You know, we work very closely with REITs that are operating in Japan, they're Japanese REITs, or in the United Kingdom, that are UK REITs. So really, REIT-based real estate investment has become the main way that the public can access large-scale pools of real estate in the U.S. and around the world, and that's a good thing because it's helping to democratize real estate investment. It gives everybody, all of your listeners, the ability to own a share, not only in buildings in Hawaii, but income-producing real estate in the other 49 states, as well as elsewhere in the world. And what we've seen coming through this economy is that coming through COVID, REITs uh, had to take steps to deal with the sudden changes in the economy and they did. We're now at a point where in most of the sectors, REITs are generating earnings comparable to or better than at the beginning of COVID. So the real estate community is recovering, has recovered from the COVID shock. Last year, REITs were the best performing sector in the stock market uh, at 41% uh, total return. This year, we've stepped back. So REITs are down relative to the broader stock market so far this year to date. The broader stock market's down 20-plus percent, and REITs are down a little closer to 30. This is the ups and downs of the stock market are, uh, you know, you see year to year. What is important is the operating businesses of the REITs this year are doing well. Uh, and REITs use far less debt in general than other forms of real estate. So they're funded by more equity, which makes them in that sense, uh, less subject uh, to, to some of the stresses of the current environment where interest rates are rising. You know, we do not yet appear to be in a recession. It may be determined in the coming months we are. Others will determine that. Uh, but we think REITs are well situated should the country go into the recession because of the term of their debt. You know, they, they don't need to borrow a lot in the coming uh, near-term years. They, they've had it laddered over the next decade, and uh, they've, they've had well-leased properties. Now, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot unknown as we head into 2023 as to whether the actions of the Fed will take us into a recession or not. As you, I guess, stop and reflect over what we just went through with COVID, um, yeah, how, how did how did the, the the shopping centers do? I mean, gosh, when everything was shut down, the two the two sectors of the real estate business that were the most affected uh, were hospitality or the hotel and lodging business uh, because the travel stopped, and then of course the uh, the uh, shopping center business, but particularly the mall business more than the so-called neighborhood shopping centers. Neighborhood shopping centers, because they were necessity anchored, sometimes, you know, grocery stores, drug stores, types of uh, establishments that were open and operating during the crisis, uh, they fared somewhat better. The, the, the neighborhood shopping center business has come back very strong uh, now that we're sort of on the other side, more or less, of COVID. And then, of course, uh, the mall business has come back pretty, pretty much as well. But they, they, they suffered the most. Uh, what we are waiting to see in the hotel and lodging space is we've seen resort-type properties, as you have in Hawaii and, and many other locations in the United States. It's coming back pretty strong, 
the convention-oriented part of that business is slower to come back as, as, as businesses and large-scale meetings are only now coming back online. And then how are you looking at what percentage you have of like office buildings, you know, as a whole concept of working virtually or mm-hmm. a hybrid work situation? I think that the return to work, work from home question is one that will sort itself out over the next several years. We all learned what we could do from home, and we could do it pretty well. But I think what we forgot is the importance of human interaction. So when I reflect uh, on my career, and I suspect you on yours, uh, you cannot discount the importance of knowing people in person, sitting down with someone, having a conversation like we are right now. Face-to-face. Face-to-face. Uh, it builds a level of trust and understanding you can never do through Zoom, and it establishes long-time relationships. That's important in the workplace, as well as with customers and everyone you interact with in a business. So I, I, I truly believe that over time, and it may take some years, uh, the benefits of in-person activity will outweigh the convenience of working from home. But I do think some things have changed in terms of flexibility. I think we all sort of have a better understanding of the importance of autonomy for the individual employee and worker and the need for flexibility in people's lives. And I think most employers uh, are working to honor that. And as they do so, I think you know we'll, we'll, we'll reset. But on, on balance, I think we'll begin to see more and more people in the office environment. So it's not going to just drop out overnight where everybody's just terminating their leases? And, yeah. uh, no, I don't We're, believe so. But I do believe there's a challenge for, for cities as uh, we be better understand what flexibility means in terms of bringing people in and out of these metropolitan areas. And any thoughts just, you know, going forward with Hawaii? I mean, you folks have uh, now established an office here. I mean, it opened, you know, just before the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Hawaii is an infinitely interesting place. I know only a very tiny bit about it. I think the future is good. It's, it's, a, it's a place people want to live and work. And uh, I think that uh, over time, there'll be an ability to operate in Hawaii uh, in a way that respects you know, native Hawaiian uh, culture and the needs of a 21st century environment and state. And okay. that's one of the things we're very focused on at NARIT uh, right now is uh, our various activities with respect to you know in, in, in environmental, social, and governance-related activities. So we, we're, we're working to operate with far more social responsibility with a view to the environment, and of course making sure that our companies are operating with good governance. And that's something that we've undertaken as we talk about the NAREED Foundation and some of our charitable activities. Uh, we've undertaken in the past year a, a fundraising effort to generate additional charitable funds to support diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in the real estate community and the REIT community specifically. And so that's become an important uh, aspect of our business as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's great being with you yeah. in person. And safe travels. That was Steve Wexler, president and CEO of NAREIT, who was in town this week to meet with a number of community groups who are recipients of grants provided by the NAREIT Foundation. We should note that NAREIT is an underwriter of HPR. September is coming to a close, and that means so is Child Care Provider Appreciation Month. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi made the designation earlier this year in recognition of how important early children's education is to cakey development and the community. But many don't get the opportunity to hear about the challenges that those in the child care industry face and overcome regularly. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Kiopu Relitz, the Director of Early Learning and Health Policy at the Hawaii Children's Action Network, to get an update on the staffing shortage Hawaii's child care industry is facing, as well as its impact 
on the economy. They were joined by two child care providers, Tony McCartney on Kauai and Mickey Adams on the Big Island. We start with Relitz. I think it's safe to say that childcare as a sector is in a crisis. And I say that, which is like, I feel like every sector says they're in a crisis, but this crisis has been for as long as I've had children, which is now six years. So this is an ongoing crisis that's been happening and then exacerbated by the pandemic. We do know is that families need childcare and need someone to care for and educate their young children from as early as six weeks to 10 weeks, right? So if you're a working mom, right? So someone like me, I had my child and I have to get back to work within 12 weeks. Who's going to take care of my kid? And so what we see is an acute crisis in the infant and toddler realm. And I say that because it's one, it's an area that the two providers that you're talking to today, they feel a, a major role in caring for our youngest Keiki, so that zero to three age range. But it's also something that we don't think about a lot because we think more school readiness, but really early childhood care and education spans the entire spectrum from prenatal to kindergarten entry. And we have to remember the entire spectrum because children are learning from when they're in the womb. And we need a strong workforce that's able to care for these children, that's able to help them develop, help them learn and help families be able to do what they need to do, whether it's getting to work or doing other things. I think it's important to note that, you know, in 2020, we had 102,000 children under the age or under kindergarten, basically five years and younger. And we only had in 2020, 3,400 childcare workers or early childhood care and education professionals. And so if you actually do the math on what that means, how many kids could actually be cared for by that number of providers, you're looking at anywhere from like 20,000 to 50,000. That's the only, that's the capacity that we have. The state has been doing a lot to draw attention to the early childhood care and education field. I did want to mention that there was a, a significant influx of federal money during the pandemic that the Department of Human Services pushed out in the form of grants. I think it was somewhere around $80 million in federal relief did go to childcare providers, family childcare homes, group childcare homes, childcare centers. However, that money is going to run out in the next year. And so we are seeing kind of this cliff that might happen. Is there a reason for the lack of childcare providers? Folks who are working in early childhood care and education are undervalued, both in money and in prestige. And so what you see time and time again is that these are folks who are paid significantly less than the specialization that they provide. I pulled some stats in 2018. The median was $10.64 an hour. By 2020, it had only jumped up to $12.43 an hour. So in 2020, that means that folks are making, folks who are designated in that child care sector area, the median income was less than $26,000 a year. So how do we encourage a next generation of folks to, to enter when we don't pay them enough. And so that's one thing we've been looking for and our community has been looking for is how do we make sure that we're getting more public investment to the workforce itself so that we value them. It's hard to have a pipeline, right, when if we have more people going into early childhood education, but then they go in for maybe a couple of years and they realize this one really hard work, they've got this bachelor's degree, where they're super specialized or helping basically craft little brains into curious learners from here on out, but they can make more money at Target. So I just, I want to make that point. I'm just like, not only do we undervalue them, like we undervalue them for their specialization, but then for their actual critical role that they play for the rest of the economy. It sounds like a very similar situation to what we see our teachers go through. Tony, can you tell me what you're seeing on Kauai? Kauai, I think it's probably statewide. I bet you Mickey could have seen the same issues on the Big Island as we're seeing here on Kauai. Is just that whole understaffed. You know, we we I have a waiting list. Just to give you a perspective, I have a waiting list with four infants and three toddlers, and I will not have another opening until January. So right there, just me as one provider have seven kids on a waiting list for care. So the need is so, the need is, to, it's always been there. That's one reason I do what I do now. When my daughter was born, 
I hadn't, I didn't know anything about daycare. I couldn't imagine leaving her with someone for that long a period of time. So I figured, oh, I'll do childcare, nanny, just till she gets into school age. Well, it was just a snowball effect. So 15 years later, I still have a waiting list of seven kids. I have never been able to say to myself, okay, you're done because the need is so great out there for childcare that I figure if I close, that's six more kids that won't be having the education or the care that they need every day. Mickey, switching over to you, can you tell me what you're seeing there on the Big Island? When the pandemic happened, a lot of girls closed their doors. And when people started going back to work, nobody came back. I think I had one come back, was only here for a few weeks, and then the family says, you know what, we have family at home. So we'll just leave her at home. So that's the other big thing, too, is I'm finding that with a lot of the local families, they either are not back at work or they have someone who's not working. So their children are staying with family. When I see my former local families that I know have babies, oh, you know, when baby turns this age, call me. And they'll all say, I have someone who's not working. I know someone who's not working. And then I'll always ask, are they licensed? And sometimes they say yes, and a lot of times they say no. And I said, I would really love to help them get licensed. You know my number, call me. Everything is to get more girls as licensed as possible. I'll still have phone calls for infant care. And I will ask that mom, you know, are you an essential worker? Like, are you a nurse or something like that? And if they say no, I'll encourage them to open childcare. Stay home with your baby. I'll give you the numbers to the social worker. She'll, you know, come out and help you get started. And they'll say, oh, it's so hard with my one baby. I said, okay, then just take another one. Just do what you can, but stay home, make it your own, keep your baby safe, keep another baby safe, and still make money. Kyopu, when do you think the line became blurry between child care provider and child educator? From what I've heard so far, the line is kind of blurry now. Child care providers are expected to be educators as well, like pre-kindergarten, preschool educators. Honestly, I think the line's always been blurry. When you look at the history of childcare in the United States, we always, the folks who are caring for our youngest kids are helping them develop. They're helping them socialize. Some of those important things you can do for your youngest kids are making sure that they're able to interact with folks, learn how to regulate their emotions, learn how to use like basic motor skills. So I think for a lot of us, it's always been blurry and having this dichotomy and not recognizing the specialization that has been there and has always been there for providers, whether they're called educators or childcare providers, is part of this recognition that it has always been a specialized field. They have never been just babysitters, right? They have always been folks who are formative. They're the ones that are going to notice, oh, this child's not talking at the rate that the age that that other children are talking, or maybe their fine motor skills are a little bit delayed. They're the ones that are going to relay that to a parent. I, if, if my kid is in care 40 hours a week, I'm not going to see that as acutely as somebody who sees them day in and day out. And they're the ones that are going to be able to help work with them. And so I would just say that it, it the blind has always been blurry. And I think part of this month is to really get folks to understand that it's okay that it's blurry, but let's lift up the folks who have been doing this work and recognize how specialized and how important the work that they've been doing has always been. That was Kiopu Relitz with the Hawaii Children's Action Network and child care providers Tony McCartney and Mickey Adams. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about Hawaii's child care industry as we mark the end of Child Care Provider Appreciation Month. <laughs> It's time to give aloha. This month, when you shop at Foodland, Second Save, or Foodland Farms, please consider making a donation to Hawaii Public Radio. Every September, Foodland's Give Aloha program matches a portion of donations made to participating nonprofits like HPR at checkout. For more info, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash give aloha. 
Mahalo. Many of us fantasize about quitting our jobs and having all the free time in the world. But what if we have more time than we think? This is important to recognize because it suggests where can we reallocate some of our time so that we can spend more on moments of joy. How changing the way you think about time can help you find more of it this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. For the past 17 years, the community has enjoyed taking part in the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. Saturday, October 1st, kicks off a month-long celebration of the written word in mele and more. In the past, you would see the tents start to be erected on the grounds of Honolulu Hale in May for a two-day in-person event. Big change is that the festival is now held in October and will be virtual and run for the whole month. We talked to organizer Roger Jelinek this morning about the expansion of the free festival to include the diversity of ideas. Our program, the core of it is the Hawaii authors. We're featuring about 35 of them. But because we've gone virtual, we now have access to VIP authors from anywhere. So we have an author from London, another one from California, another one from the East Coast, and so on, because uh, it's much easier with, with Zoom to do that. So in the future, we will be hybrid. The venue has changed. I mean, while it normally would have been in person at Honolulu Hale on the grounds there, um, it's basically virtual with a couple of things maybe at the University of Hawaii at Manoa campus. We actually decided to move to UH Manoa and to get into partnership with UH Manoa as we gradually become morphing into an ideas festival as well as a book festival. And they have terrific resources there, and we often are in partnership with them on VIP speakers, for example. And it's a beautiful location. So we decided to make that move back in 2019, and COVID hit, so we've never actually been able to do it in person. But that's the plan going forward after this year. That's the plan, yes. So tell us what's in tap for uh, the month of October. In addition to the Hawaii authors and the VIP authors, we have several theme programs. We've always done a Hawaiian culture program, which we reckon is the most in-depth program on Hawaiian culture for a general audience in the state, because the action is quite often now in books for Hawaiian Renaissance because of the immersion programs and the rediscovery of the Hawaiian language newspapers. We have a sustainability program which ranges from climate change to systemic corruption. The main idea of the sustainability program is future-oriented. We talk about Hawaii 2.0 as a possible model for the planet. There are a lot of things going on in Hawaii that are literally models for the rest of the world, and also, obviously, a lot of problems that are not models for the rest of the world. And we do both. We examine both from a sustainability point of view. We have a wellness program, which ranges from discussions of the surge in eating disorders, anxiety in kids and teenagers, to a breakthrough discovery in genetic editing. We have an innovation program, which covers innovation that's developed in Hawaii and can be anything from advanced visualization, a new data culture, moving from hoarding data to sharing data to solve big problems. And we have a really extraordinary event on artificial intelligence with Noam Chomsky. He's probably the leading thinker on artificial intelligence in the world. He's also one of the most celebrated public intellectuals. So it's quite a coup to have him. So really, the virtual world has opened up so many other possibilities for this festival. Absolutely, because we we have access to anyone. There's also an economic issue with that. Uh, Instead of paying very large speaking fees and flying people in and putting them up, which is not only expensive for us, but expensive for the speaker because essentially it takes about three or four days to do one hour event by the time you've flown both ways recovered from jet lag and so on. So the plan for next year, though, would be some kind of hybrid event, you know, because there's nothing like yeah. seeing folks face to face. One thing you cannot duplicate is a serendipity. You know, you're there in person, you see a crowd in a tent and you wonder what it's about, suddenly you're drawn into something you never anticipated. I imagine, though, with the pandemic, so many priorities have shifted, you know, and we've had to deal with getting through this health and economic crisis first. But 
really, it's the arts that has probably helped to heal a lot of us and helped us get through it. Yes, though that's actually, from, from a, doing it virtually is probably the most difficult challenge. We are both a book and a music festival, and we've been able to do very little music because it's not very satisfactory virtually. And we are actually intending to do much more performance, much more music than we've ever done before once we're in person. Can you talk, too, about just the challenges with sponsorships for events as we work our way through this transition period, you know, out of the pandemic into some sense of normalcy? They're really challenging because, quite appropriately, most of the funding went to social services during COVID. And we are perceived as nice to have, not need to have. What we've attempted to do with the programming we have now is to make it into an indispensable forum for ideas that are that really matter to Hawaii. That's kind of the focus of the ideas element. There are a lot of terrific ideas that are coming into focus in Hawaii, whether it's a new kind of aquaculture that has huge potential, whether it's a trend to what's called decolonizing conservation that is really taking seriously traditional methods of conservation. You see that in the restoration of fish ponds, which was a fantastic Hawaiian invention, but now they're being, nearly 40 of them are being restored using the latest science as well as restoring the traditional methods. So talk about then how people can access, you know, all these. You only have to register once and then you can click on as many events as you like without re-registering. That was Roger Jelinek, executive director of the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. It kicks off virtually this Saturday and runs through the month of October. Look for links for the schedule on the conversation page of our website later today. That is it for it uh, for us today. Our Aloha Friday show will be a Hanahoan featuring young voices across our community. Give us some feedback. Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us, uh, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.